My word. Well, it's been snowing all week. It couldn't be more Dickensian. We are here for Little Dorrit. Our final book of this season. And Fizz and Boz are back with a vengeance, aren't they, with this one? <laughs> Fizz and Boz are back, those two crazy characters. It is. It's, um, it's been such a great um, series, this, because, you know, we've really gone through, well, I think, all the great ones. And, um, and it feels nice that we're kind of ending <clears throat> with Little Dorrit, because obviously this is the one that's based, really, on his childhood. So it feels like we're kind of going back and going back to some of the stuff we discussed in our first episode with Fern about his childhood and about his time when he was, uh, you know, when his dad was in, sent to prison for debt and he was out working, which we'll come on to. But it feels like a really fitting end to the series. Yeah, and what's lovely about this is we've kind of gone full circle with our guests as well because we started off with a historian and we're ending with a historian. So we've got a fantastic Dickens expert joining us today. We'll leave a little bit of suspense and introduce him later. Um, but in the meantime, shall we crack on with Little Dorrit? Shall we talk a little bit about this particular book? So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great book. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's, 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 it's such an amazing story. And it's obviously based on really, like we said, him as, a, him as a child. What are the kind of juicy facts that we've got this week? So normally I would give a lot of history um, in this section, but because we've got such a fantastic guest later, I'm going to try and leave as much of that to him as possible. But the basics of this book are, like always, it's released in instalments. So this was 19 instalments from 1855 to 1857 and each installment cost a shilling at the time, apart from the last one because it was a double issue. So you had to pay two shillings I'm trying to think, what would that be in our money today? Two shillings. Yeah, like, well, I've got no idea. <laughs> well, I've tried to Google, like, how much is two shillings worth today? But I think I've sort of done it. No, actually, <laughs> no I'm going to... Can we just say that Ali's tried to, to look for shillings and she's found Kenyan shillings instead of... Not real the same shillings. thing. Not, not, not quite the same. Yeah, it's crazy. I don't really know um, shillings-wise. I mean, I'm, you know... Well, I'm going to go get a, a coffee before lunch, so I'll, ask, I'll, I'll, I'll do a little debluff. I'll say, how many shillings is that? And see what he says. I'm living in Hackney, which is quite a Dickensian area, so I'm sure that maybe, maybe shillings do exist. Yeah, the, the book was 19 instalments, and when it was released as a full novel at the end, it was split into two books, so it's Poverty and Riches, which is quite nice. Nice. That's pretty cool because they because because they become rich. I mean, we'll talk about that later. But then they, they it, it's it's like they're two different lifestyles, isn't it? In prison and then when they're jumping around. Exactly. Yeah. So the poverty is all around their their life in the prison, and then the riches is after they leave it. And there is a very distinct sort of line because they they don't want to acknowledge that they had that previous life. They don't mm -hmm. tell their new friends that they've been imprisoned. It's all very hush hush and secret shame. But before we go into all of that, shall we give our listeners a breakdown of the plot? Sounds good to me. As always, remember this is just a very brief plot because there are so many characters and we cannot get them all in, but this is the main vein. This is the main vein. So, the story is set 30 years before it was written, which we believe to be the year 1826. Now, Arthur Clennam is quarantining in Marseille. It's appropriate as he is en route home from living in the Far East with his father. Now, his father has died and entrusted Arthur with a pocket watch with the initials DNF on, which is Do Not Forget, inscribed on it. When he gave this to Arthur on his deathbed, he murmured the words, Your Mother, to him. So Arthur is journeying back to see his mother. When he sees his mother, she's very cold to him and wants nothing to do with him. She is angry with him that he has left the family firm and tells him to leave. Meanwhile, there is a man called William Dorrit who is a prisoner at the Marshalsea Prison and he has three children, Tip, Fanny and the youngest, Amy, otherwise known as Little Dorrit. Unlike her siblings, Amy was born in the prison and she supports the family through sewing. William Dorrit has been imprisoned for debt and is nicknamed the father of the Marshalsea, holding great respect in there from the other inmates. Unlike her siblings, Amy is not ashamed of her father's position, but he is very embarrassed about his situation. Amy Dorrit starts working for Mrs. Clennam, and Arthur comes across her as, and is intrigued by her and her family's situation. 
he goes to the Marshalsea to uncover how they came to be there. Amy falls in love with Arnold when she sees him, and he starts to financially provide for the family as a sort of benefactor. Now, Arthur discovers that the Dorrits are actually rich, and that William Dorrit is heir to a large fortune, which enables them to pay their way out of prison, and they decide to tour Europe, and they start this new life, ridding where they have come from. They are all ashamed of their previous life, except for Amy. Fanny, her sister, marries a man called Edmund Sparkler. She had previously been paid off by his mother to not see him because of her situation, but now she's fallen into riches, his mother allows it. And she is constantly telling Amy to forget her past and embrace their new life of high society. Now, a man called Mr. Myrtle, who's quite new money, he's a capitalist, has a sudden suicide and with him dies all of the savings both Mr. Dorrit and Arthur Clennam had placed in his estate. William Dorrit falls ill and also dies, and Arthur Clennam is sent to prison at the Marshalsea. Now, meanwhile, while all this has been going on, there's a villainous French prisoner called Rigaud, who is on the run under another name, Blandois, and he has uncovered the true past, which is that Mrs. Clennam is not Arthur's biological mother, and in fact, his uncle, Arthur's uncle, had encouraged Arthur's father to marry Mrs. Clennam. Feeling guilty because of this arranged marriage, Arthur's uncle left a large portion of his investment to Arthur's real mother and the youngest daughter of her patron, who is Amy Dorrit. It turns out that Mrs. Clennam knew the truth but kept it secret. Also, while this has all been going on, a man called Daniel Doyce, who Arthur met at the Marshalsea, and had gone into business with earlier in the story, has now achieved success on his venture, leaving Arthur with a fortune that he can use to buy his way out of prison. And at the end, he marries Amy Dorrit. Yeah, so it's, it's, you know, there's a lot going on. And like Ali said at the very beginning, we haven't mentioned half of the characters that, you know, that, that come into that synopsis. Um, but the main thread is of, I guess, like shame, isn't it really? It's the idea of... Um, not being comfortable with your surroundings and that sort of insecurity um, that, that people have when, um, you know, when they're around people who are above their station and they're always with them, but they're kind of ashamed of where they come from and the self-delusion that comes with that. And that, I think, seems to inhabit this family, right? Mm, basically, everybody has some kind of prison in this, in this novel. Mm. Um, either it's like physically or mentally. I mean, you've got Arthur's mother and she's like physically and mentally imprisoned herself because of her secret past. And, you know, you've got the physical imprisonment of the Dorrit family. It's e every single major character has some form of imprisonment, um, apart from maybe Daniel Doyce. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because even Amy Dorrit is physically in prison. Um, yeah, you're right. And it is kind of like, yeah, I, well, I guess Daniel Doyce, you're right. He's not in prison, but he kind of hangs around near there with all the kind of debt collectors and stuff. So I guess he's, yeah, you're right. It's probably only him, really, that's the only character who, um, you know, and that awful one, what's his name? Henry Gowan. Henry Gowan. Awful man, Henry Gowan. Um, but so, yeah, so they're, they're, they're all kind of imprisoned in their own way. You're right. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's that thing that is a constant theme of Dickens, which seems to always be in all of his books, which is clearly a theme that he's interested by, about your past never leaving you. And no matter how much you try and run away from your past, you just run into it. There's no point in trying to rid who you are. So whether you're, um, you know, Pip trying to be a gentleman and leaving the marshes of Kent to, 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 to this new life of, um, of enterprise, you run into all the characters in your past. And you're absolutely right that in this case, mentally, these characters have left, left prison physically left prison but mentally they're still very much in their own prisons until they accept who who they are mm, i was trying to like write down all of the all of the ways all the different characters were imprisoned in, in this so my list is imprisoned by their discontent by yep. their poverty yeah uh, by their ignorance yeah by their personal ambition and even some of them by like ill-judged kindness. I, I, I think you, you can sometimes say that maybe Amy Dorrit has, has that, that's sort of mm. her mm. only flaw. I would say like all of the other characters are very multifaceted and there's, there's, you know, shades of good and bad and some of them pretend to be good, but actually are bad. And she is just this very typical shining beacon of goodness and joy. And it's kind of why she, she gets to, 
to be free. She's the only one who's free at the end of the book, mm. but she is free in a damaged world. So mm. she's mm. still still technically imprisoned almost at the end. Yeah, it's almost, yes, it's a very good point that by being the only character who's not physically or mentally imprisoned, <clears throat> she sort of is in a world of characters that are. So because of that, she's still not able to interact with anyone who's like her. So she's still in this bubble of imprisonment in a weird way. Um, but she is a great character. And, you know, we should talk about the fact that this is obviously Dickens's childhood, that when he was um, young, his father was sent to prison for debt, um, which we've mentioned before. Um, he was working in a boot blacking factory whilst his family were in prison. So this is really a kind of um, child to tale, I suppose. And it's even set in the Marshalsea prison, which is where his dad was in, Su in Southwark, um, which I think people can still go to and, um, and, and check out, right? Yeah, so the, the Marshalsea was the debtor's prison. And yeah, that's where the Dickens family were sent for three months. And yeah, Dickens came, came and left. And I always find this quite interesting that you could leave and come back and join your family and, and then go out into the world again, which is such an alien concept to us because I think what we think of prison now is, is totally different to what debtor's prison was back then. Yeah. That, that it's not the same situation. It's, it's, there was whole families and, and people like lived their lives there. And I think this book really illustrates that kind of community that you would have found in these places, which I, do, I don't think is like a modern understanding of prison. Well, also the, the amount of like security you have to get through now to get into prison. I imagine like, you know, if you go and um, don't speak from experience, but if you, if you want to go to prison to see people, um, the amount of, you know, letters you have to write and security measures, things you have to send. I mean, it's a, I'd imagine it takes months to even be able, allowed to walk into a prison now. So you're right. The idea of coming and going almost like it's a, like it's a kind of block of flats or something is, um, is, is crazy. And we should talk about, you know, William Dorrit is the father. He's, he's nicknamed the father of the Marshalsea because, uh, you know, the, I think the, pre the, the previous prison, leader uh had died and he's now taken on this role and all the all the prisoners and all the inmates sort of look up to him as this as this kind of godlike figure don't they yeah and he puts on this facade as if he's chosen to be there as if it's his choice to live there and that's the way his life is supposed to be which yeah. is not the case <laughs> at all <laughs> yeah i always knew i'd be here you know i sort of yeah it is in, very interesting and the idea that it was for debt as well i mean it's something that's hard to fathom now isn't it that if you you know, if you if you were bad at handling finances, you know, you would just be sent straight to prison. And um, and obviously this is, you know, personal experience for Charles Dickens, but um, it's what is the character's situation. Um, but we should talk a little bit about some of these characters, I reckon. Any that you want to start with, or should I name one and throw it in the ring? What I like about this one is that all of the characters' voices. So you've got Mr. Sparkler, who, I mean, what a great name. Oh, they're, they're just so yeah. sort of yeah. visual and onomatopoeic, aren't they? they? They literally are what they are. And he, he has this thing where he's like ranting about like damn fine women with no nonsense about them. And I, I, I love, yeah. you can hear his voice as you read the book. And I think with this book, you really hear all of their voices and you're reading it. They're so, even if it's just like a tiny little character that you've got yeah. there. And I find it really interesting because like, E.M. Forrester complained that all the, the characters were flat. Which, which I, I, didn't get, I, I didn't get either. I mean, Edmund, Spar Ed, Edmund Sparkler, who you mentioned, he is the character who marries Amy Dorrit's sister, um, Fanny. And he's a kind of bit of a buffoon, really, isn't he? he, he his, his mother's very sort of very, very prim and proper and, and, and wants to be a member of high society. And she's very pernickety about who he marries. And, um, and he's awful with money, isn't he? He's the one that sort of almost screws the whole thing up at the end and puts all the investments in the wrong place. And, um, and, and, but, but, you know, like you said, the word sparkler, it kind of just brings in this bright flush of, you know, and the way that he speaks is, is, is absolutely true. Um, Mr. Myrtle as a character is someone who I think represents that, that sense of um, aspiration that was taking place a lot in the Victorian age of, 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 of you know, the, this, you know, the industrial revolution and people suddenly becoming very wealthy for the first time. And it was almost 
um, like Fan said, the middle classes were really born out of the previous century, but this idea of new money and this idea of suddenly it wasn't just the aristocracy and um, the working class, it was this, you know, you suddenly had a new wave of people who walked into wealth, um, not necessarily from that background, and this tension that exists um, between people like that and people of old money. And there's a lot of snobbery towards Mr. Myrtle because he's seen as someone who has to work. And he has to get up on a Monday morning and actually work. And who does that with money, you know? So he's quite an interesting character, I think, isn't he? Yeah, he's one of those like murky characters, isn't he? He's, he's all shades of grey. Which is, we always say that in, in Dickens, you have like the goodies and the baddies. But yeah. I feel like this is one of those, those novels that actually, there's not, there's like a whole sort of like group mm. of murky characters. And a lot more nuance, of, yeah. Yeah, and some of them are on the darker side and some are on the lighter side. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, like, you've got the Dorrits are on the lighter side and, and Flora mm. Finching, who... But they are still, but they are still, like, you're right, they're, they're, they're nuanced, though. They are on the lighter side, but they're quite flawed. I mean, you know, someone like William Dorrit is, is a nice guy, but he's incredibly insecure. Um, and he's not someone that you'd necessarily aspire to be. He's someone who's really, you know, embarrassed about where he comes from. I mean, he doesn't, I don't think, have a bad bone really in his body but he's a, he's a victim of that kind of class consciousness, isn't he? And they all have, you know, facets of their personality that, 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 that seem to contradict each other. So yeah, lots of nuance. Um, we've got Rigo, this French guy who, um, who opens the novel, I think talking about how he killed his wife, is that right? with the black moustache so like you, again so visual the way he's he's written with this like this moustache and this french accent and him sort of <laughs> cackling to himself <laughs> like it's just when i read this book i really 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 see these characters and i've i've not ever watched any adaptations of this so i'm gonna leave all of those suggestions to you at the end yeah but I, I really, I almost feel like it would ruin it if I watched any any adaptations of this because in my head they are so set in stone of what they all look like. Mm, yeah, they really are. And it's funny, I'm actually rereading Oliver Twist at the moment. Um, and you're right that it is a whole, it's a completely different experience reading the book because the way that he describes, he, he describes characters in a way that does something to you. When he describes them, you get that goosebump, tingly feeling like you see them and, and his descriptions of them, you automatically relate it to someone that you know, don't you? There's always that person who's like the character. And so I think you, you know, your imagination at the point when you're reading the book is absolutely at full throttle. You know? So you, you don't want that ruined. You don't want to, to see someone else's uh, interpretation of it because it's so beholden and precious in your own head. But yeah, he's, he's, Rigo is a crazy guy and he really is this, I suppose, um, you know, seeker of the truth, ultimately. Like, he's got the big secret and he's pushing, pushing, pushing for it. Um, he's like, uh, he reminds me of like a, you know, the, a, a pantomime villain, or one of those old villains in the, you know, the kind of Victorian age of Punch and Judy street, street shows and everything. Um, and, uh, and just is, is, is stopping at nothing um, to get what he wants um, through Mrs. Clenham. What about, what, what do you think about Mrs. Clenham as a character, Arthur's non-biological mother? Uh, it's 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 quite. She has quite a a very tragic ending. So again, shades shades of grey. So I, I look at her and you think, God, she's so cruel and unkind. And then she kind of comes good at the end and she confesses to Amy what what she's done. And then sort of almost her last words are her confessing everything that that mm -hmm. she's been holding over everyone. And then she she literally collapses from from it and, mm. and loses the ability to speak and to move and then again it's, I, I keep going back to it but then she's totally physically imprisoned in her whole body then there's this, that that mm. is it she's then trapped i suppose after she has this like release she's then sort of locked in and it's i do feel sorry for her as a character and you know she's she's not the most likable but again they're but it's justified yeah yeah and i you even though you know she's she's done terrible things, you do. I I feel for her. Do you feel for her? I, I I do. I think she's a great character, and I think it's very interesting what you said about how characters are either physically or mentally imprisoned. Because the Dorrits are physically imprisoned, and when they come out, they're mentally imprisoned. 
Other characters are mentally imprisoned, but not physically imprisoned. Other characters are physically imprisoned and not mentally imprisoned. And she's the only character, I could be wrong, who is both all the mm -hmm. way through. You know, she's physically imprisoned in this house for pretty much the entire story and mentally imprisoned with this secret. And because she's the only character who's both physically and mentally imprisoned through the whole story, she just sort of, you know, collapses. And, um, and I think, yeah, it's, it's, it, she, she is very dislikable uh, at the beginning. Um, but then, yeah, you do, you do understand why, that she's in tremendous amounts of pain. And there is this sense that she's, I think she just, it's like she just, Arthur is, you know, Arthur walking in the room is everything about that part of her life coming back represented in a person. And there is this wonderful sense with Dickens as well about how, um, you know, when all these dots are joined and you realise that actually he wasn't her son and actually that he is drawn to Amy Dorrit, there is this sense of um, uh, connection between people. about, And it's a commentary, I think, that he makes about how um, people sense that. You know, Arthur senses that he's doesn't really have that same connection with her. Uh, she doesn't have the feeling of love that she would have to her biological son. I think if he was her biological son, I don't think she would be that hostile to him. Mm -hmm. Arthur senses that there's a connection between him and Amy Dorrit. And he doesn't know what it is, but he senses it. And there is this sense of, excuse the pun, sense, 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 that, um, that you know, when people are connected and they don't know how, they, they feed off that energy from each other. Um, yeah. And also, one, one thing I want to ask you about is... Um, I mean, we, we talk, we're going to talk about it a bit with our guest later on, but what's this story about the, um, the character of Flora um, and Dickens's ex-girlfriend or something? Yeah, so I, I really, really, really love this. And I would have talked about this earlier on in the pub, but um, I'm, I'm hoping that we're going to get a slightly more educated answer than what I can provide. Um, but what I've um, discovered is that Flora Flinching is based on a woman that Dickens, I suppose, was like wooing or courting. He fancied her, <laughs> wannabe girlfriend. And they had a big falling out at his 21st birthday party. And then they didn't speak for something like 24 years. And then they got back in contact. And when he saw her again, I think in his head, he just still imagined her to look like she did back, back, way back when. And you know, everybody has like the one that got away. I think mm -hmm. this was his, the one that got away. Yeah. And so he was very, very, very disappointed when he saw her. And he and we we say this every week there's always somebody that we talk about who he's kind of like got his literary revenge on so mm. <laughs> this is this is the character in that so he's written flora flinching and she is based on maria beadnell i believe is her yeah. name yeah so he writes her as this kind of grim widowed silly woman I mean, not unkind i mean she's a she's a sweet character and she's very lovely but she's sort of like dim-witted and flirtatious yeah. and it's embarrassing and it's it's a very yeah, almost cringeworthy i would be devastated did she oh. still love did mary still love charles like did she always love him was she always quite keen to be with him even when he wasn't with her no i don't think so so i i from what i gather they were not an item i think he pursued her more which is probably why he's he's then sort of a bit smug with with this yeah. character that he's written so it's almost like he's he's come out on top because I, I think maybe his advances were were not appreciated at, at the time I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure we need to we'll get into our interview um and, and find yeah. out the the real facts it's just a sign of revenge really isn't it and flora we should say flora finching is so Arthur, who's the not the main character, that's that's Amy Dorrit, but he's um, main male character. It's his previous fiance, isn't it, that he comes into contact with? So that's the context. Exactly. So it's it's the same sort of thing. His previous fiance. I don't think Dickens was ever as far with this woman. Then comes back into Arthur's life, and again, he is also very disappointed when he when he sees her. So it's yeah, oh, art imitating life or life imitating art. Yeah, life imitating art comes back full circle with what we were saying in episode one about how Charles Dickens is he's not not the most um, moral character in every sense of the word, uh, especially with his treatment of women. Um, and uh, important to remind ourselves of that. 
Yeah, I think this is around the time that he starts his affair with uh, a 18 year old Ellen Turnman. So, uh, yeah. yeah, it was obviously very um, at the forefront of his mind, sort of, oh, how can I leave my wife? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, he's thinking about affairs. That's yeah. Without <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, um, further ado, Jimmy, do you want to introduce this week's guest? Absolutely. So, our next guest is an author, professor, TV broadcaster, and literary journalist. He writes regular columns on contemporary fiction for The Guardian, has edited works by Daniel Defoe, and is the author of What Matters in Jane Austen. His latest book, however, the hugely popular The Artful Dickens, explores the tricks and ploys of the great novelist himself. It's John Mullen. Hi. One thing about today is it's very Dickensian with the weather, isn't it? With the snow gently falling. Is that Dickensian? Yeah, I guess it is. It does do bleak weather. It is sort of thinking how often we say, I wish it would snow. And then when it does, it's actually a bit grim, isn't it? You know? I, I think I'm a, a child at heart. I love the snow. But I think that's also because I grew up in Asia. So I, I never oh, I experienced it. So it's always such a novelty for me. Right. OK. Where did you grow up then? Um, in Thailand, in Bangkok. Right. And there's nowhere in Thailand where it ever snows. Never at all. And they didn't really understand Christmas. So I remember one year seeing a Santa Claus staked to a crucifix. <laughs> Strange imagery. <laughs> if you're ready, we'll crack on with some questions. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Let's go. Right. Well, first one we were thinking is it's obviously the book written about Dickens's childhood. But I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about where he was in his own life when he wrote Little Dorrit. Okay, well, he wrote it in, in, in the, in the mid-1850s when he was in his sort of early 40s. And the funny thing is, although it's a book which does indeed sort of go back to revisit some childhood experiences, you might say childhood traumas, as that's the <laughs> word we tend to use of any memory that isn't very nice, it, it, it's actually he's he's well on into his career he's very successful he's quite well off actually the the year that he's writing little dorrit because of course these books are being serialized little dorrit serialized monthly so he's kind of writing it as it's being published and sometimes maybe he's only a couple of episodes a ahead of the of the reader so as it's appearing it's like a a sort of a series of current events, the book, both for him and for the readers. And while he's writing it, he actually buys the only house he ever bought in his life, which was a place called Gads Hill Place in, in Kent that he'd always, he'd walked past as a boy and always wanted to possess if he became rich and famous. And he's rich and famous. He's rich and famous. But the funny thing is, it's also, I don't know, he's kind of, hit midlife ennui, I think, a bit. Um, and it, that really colours the book because the main character, main male character in it, Arthur Clennam, is the same sort of age as Dickens when, when he wrote it and suffers from a kind of disappointed melancholy and sense of lost opportunity. And it's his his relationship with Little Dorrit, which for a long, long time, not to spoil the story, but for a long, long time, he's too foolish to understand himself is what's going to save him from this. So yes, it goes back to Dickens's memories of his father's imprisonment for debt when he was a child. But actually, it's a very middle-aged book, I think, in many ways. Mm. You you mentioned there the the memories of his father and um, in previous podcasts we've talked about how Dickens wrote Macawber to be like his father, but in this book it's Mister Dorrit that he's based on. Was Dickens's dad a massive social climber like him? Oh uh, well, okay. Well, it's it's complicated because Mister Macawber in David Caulfield is his dad in one way, and William Dorrit. Amy Dorrit's dad, whom we meet in the debtor's prison, the marshal seat quite early in the book, is his dad in another way. Yeah. Um, because uh, when Dickens was about 12 years old, 
two sort of, for him, dreadful things happened, which he, he kept as big, big secrets. <laughs> and uh, it tells me something about Dickens that he felt that he had to keep them secret. One was that his father was in prison for debt. His father was a clerk for the Navy pay office. They just moved to, to, to London and his father always lived beyond his means, although his means weren't inadequate, actually. He had quite a perfectly respectable salary. And he got in prison for debt in the Marshalsea prison. And that's where William Dorrit, Amy Dorrit's dad is in Little Dorrit. It's where Amy Dorrit's born. She's born in the prison. And she has a kind of notoriety because of that. And that was a shocking thing for, for the 12-year-old Dickens. And, and actually, sort of even worse for him, because it lasted a lot longer, was at exactly this time. Um, he's also, just before his father was actually sent to prison, Dickens was sent off to work in a blacking warehouse yeah. down by the Thames, just below the Strand, basically sticking labels on bottles, 10 hours a day, six mm -hmm. days a week. And a really boring job, no doubt, but also, you know, for him, it was the end of all hope. So he was a very ambitious little boy, as he was a very ambitious man. And this meant not, you know, he, and you can completely see when you're a child, time, funny things happen to time, don't they? And Dickens is brilliant about this in, in his novels, especially in David Copperfield. And he sort of thought that this was going to go on forever, really. Yeah. And it did mean he wasn't getting an education. His father wouldn't pay for him to be educated and then sent him to sort of patch up the family finances to work in this blacking warehouse. And he put the episode into David Copperfield. So these are two big, devastating things. And the blacking <laughs> warehouse he revisits in David Copperfield and the Marshalsea prison he revisits in Little Dorrit yeah. and he puts William Dorrit there. But, but yeah, Micawber in David Copperfield is, is like his father in character. Weird mixture of endless improvidence and endless buoyancy. So but he says even the most depressed things in the most cheerful way. And Dickens's dad was um, loved Oriton's speech. And he loved to use too many words and he loved to use long words. And um, it was a habit that Dickens was amused by, even though he sometimes sort of despised his father. And he gave it to Mr. Micawber, you know, who was always saying these, if I may express myself Shakespeareanly. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and his words and sentences are at their most circumlocutory when things are worst, you know. Mm. And, and, and I think that was a thing about Dickens' dad. He, he sort of rose above the squalor of his circumstances in the long words he was able to use. One of the things that I really found brilliant and fascinating one of the chapters in your book was the the dancing between the past and the present tense that yes. you talk about in the way that he the way that he writes the little tricks that he employs and he was one of the kind of pioneers of this style wasn't he he was he was and and i think a pioneer who was very rarely acknowledged you know the funny thing is if you plow through as i have done all the contemporary responses not just latter day responses it's the contemporaries they will so you know even when they're praising him they'll sort of say but he's an entertainer you know he does these great characters and funny voices and yes that's all great but nobody ever acknowledges the extraordinary sort of technical um experiments that he does in some of his novels and even novelists who were themselves quite into doing new things didn't see it in Dickens you know so Henry James very highfalutin and he re reviews our mutual friend and our mutual friend is divided it's a very it's his last completed novel and it's divided in a very elaborate and incredibly ingenious way that it being Dickens you hardly notice as you're reading because you are laughing and flinching and but actually dividing this extraordinary way between chapters entirely in the present tense like you were saying and chapters entirely 
in the past tense. The kind of thing that sort of novelists do nowadays if they want to get on the man book a shortlist, you know, <laughs> and to show that they're really clever literary novelists. And, um, but Dickens was doing it 150 years ago. And Henry James reviews this novel and he says, oh dear, oh dear, big disappointment, hopeless, really hopeless, very poor. Um, and then he says, of course, it is quite funny in bits. I do admit it's funny. <laughs> and then he quotes at length some really funny bits. And then he says all, all the things he deplores about it. He never notices. He never says. But it has got this rather strange and ingenious construction of alternating tenses. Mm. And, and nobody at the time noticed it. It's so peculiar. Bleak House, um, you know, even, I mean... Even nowadays, you read an introduction to the sort of classic Penguin Classics edition, won't mention this. Um, and certainly at the time, nobody mentioned it. Bleak House is divided absolutely equally between chapters narrated in the first person by yes. Esther in the past tense yeah. and chapters narrated in the third person mm. in the present tense. Yeah. And nobody, you know, nobody ever done. And this is in the 1850s. Talk about I mean, that what, what's, what's happening? Yeah. Um, and not a single critic or commentator of the time yeah. thought, to, thought to notice it. Yeah. It's as if sometimes the things he was doing were so strange and so unusual that they were almost invisible. Mm -hmm. That's what I think. Yeah, we, we, did, we talked about that a little bit with, with Bleak House, how it's like the only female first person voice and then the strange other voice. Yes. I feel like in, in Little Dorrit, there's at the end, there's a lot of similarity between passions lost and when Amy's getting married at the end and there's this whole like, they go down, they go down. It's like- Oh, the, that's a wonderful opening, a like closing. Yeah, the closing Brilliant, isn't it? I love that so much. Wonderful. But yeah. yeah, I wonder if people noticed at the time that it was related to passions lost. I don't, I don't, I don't, I think the only comments on Dickens's style or narrative technique from his contemporaries were to deplore them. Mm. Nobody, I mean, and there are lots of comments from contemporaries, including from friends of his, who said, you know, well, he's a one-off, you'd never want to write like this yourself. <laughs> and, you know, Trollope, Trollope in his autobiography, and his most affable guy, Trollope, you know, and wants to be nice to most people. And he says, of Dickens's style, it is impossible to speak with any respect at all. It is jerky, spasmodic, you know. Um, and well, he's got a point, but it's supposed to be like that sometimes. The opening of Little Dorrit is incredible, isn't it? Mm. 30 years ago, Marseille lay burning in the sun one day. I mean, that's, nobody else would write that sentence. 30 years ago, one day, I mean, he says it lay burning in the sun. And then he says this thing, every, everything in Marseille feels, um, everything in Marseille and about my, Marseille had stared at the fervid sky and been stared at in return. Now, I think other writers might have thought of that sort of pathetic fallacy we call it you know yeah. giving giving uh, the, the nature sort of human qualities but having got this into into the sentence dickens then goes on to use the word stare and staring in this weird incantatory way some sort of 30 or 40 times in the following yeah in the following three or four parts everything's staring at everything else it's an unbearable place to be because of the heat. Everything and everybody is stared at. It's a classic example of how he would take something which you're not supposed to do if you're a good writer. In this, in this case, repetition. He's a king of repetition. Mm. And do it. He loves hyperbole. He relishes cliches. You know, it's as if he takes some of the things that we do when we're speaking, which are very expressive, which get ruled out of good writing and gets them back into writing. That's the way I think of it. Mm. Yeah.
I think he does that a lot with the themes in this book, doesn't he? Of like repetition. Like he talks about when when they all after they're out of the debtor's prison and they're traveling, um, yes. and how she's seeing the repetition of people's lives, like visiting the museums and doing this. It's the same as being in the prison. It's just everybody stuck. In yes, this, yes, yes. Repetition over and over. Yeah, it's extraordinary. He divides it, the novel, doesn't he, into poverty and riches, because. Yeah. Uh, um, the Dorrits are, are, you know, the family of a debtor in the first book, and then completely by hazard, they suddenly get <laughs> uh, uh, an inheritance they didn't even know they had, and are converted into wealthy people doing a grand tour. Yeah. Because they're not converted at all. No. Because they're imprisoned in their own characters and habits. And there's, and there's this quote. Yeah, sorry, go on. I was going to say, it's the one, it's, they prowled about the churches and the picture galleries much in the old dreary prison yard manner. I love that. <laughs> yes. Well, Dickens, of course, you know, he visited his father in the Marshalsea prison. And there was this weird system whereas, where the family were allowed to come and go as they wished. I mean, it wasn't even visiting hours. Mm. As long as the gates would close at night. But during daylight hours, you could come and go and, and you could live with the prisoner if you wanted to. Indeed. Dickens as a child didn't because he was off working in the warehouse. Um, but he visited his father and he got a taste of the, the routine of prison life. And of course, William Dorrit becomes utterly habituated to prison life and, and develops strange fantasies about his self-importance in the prison which then are sort of replicated when, when he's let out. Um, and and one, of the, one of the great thing, and you know, one of the great ways in which Dickens does this is that um, another great skill of his, which uh, I think people did notice at the time, is that he gives, he gives all his characters their own habits of speech, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, so William Dorrit develops in the prison this habit of speech as though he's speaking with great subtlety and thoughtfulness. And in fact, he's always trying to catch money off people. That's, <laughs> that's a reality. Yeah. But he, he dignifies his cadging with this kind of, so not, not like Micawber, it's a different sort of habit of kind of inflated speech, which is full of these little words he puts in, ha, hum, yeah. <laughs> as if he's as if he's a person who's always thinking about the moral complexities of what he's doing whereas in fact oh he's a hypocrite and a and a cadger and he can't lose these habits of speech which are his habits of character you know give a person a bequest it doesn't change them at all it just sort of magnifies them one of the things that you spoke about earlier was this um life really that Dickens was living <clears throat> when he um, when his family were in prison and he was working in the boot blacking factory um I mean he obviously paints a very very similar picture with um little Dorrit and in terms of the life that she's living she's going out to work for her family when they're in the prison was it pretty much identical in terms of the life that he paints in the Marshall Sea was it almost exact like in terms of her day-to-day -day life was it exactly like that do you think or were there some differences well I think I mean there are there's one big difference he was a man well, no I was going to say the big difference which perhaps uh, you know Dickens would have only rec recognized in retrospect is that you know his father was in in prison for about for just over three months mm. And, you know, William Dorrit is in the prison. He becomes the father of the Marshalsea, the oldest person there, for decades. And Amy is born in the prison and knows no other life. Yeah. And Dickens' experience is all founded on glimpses of a better life, another life. One of the reasons he romanticizes his so childhood in Kent is there's a period during which he actually gets a bit of education, during which his father isn't actually spending too much money, you know. <laughs> so when I referred at the beginning about him buying that house back in Kent, you know, he's, he's going back to the place where actually there was a chink of light. Mm -hmm. um, but what, what is the same, of course, is this peculiar thing, which I think kind of quite a universal thing, I think, contemporary readers now can recognize it, where 
actually the, the paterfamilias, the head of the family, is totally dependent on a child, you know. And Amy, when she starts to work, she gets, she gets one of the fellow inmates, doesn't she, so, to teach her to be a seamstress, to do sewing. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a milliner who's also in prison for debt. And um, she develops this skill and she, 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 and all the money she earns, she um, gives to her father, basically, to dignify his miserably irresponsible life with sort of the luxuries that, that he enjoys, you know. And he likes to sort of dine as if he's in a restaurant or something. <laughs> Mass sort of monarch of self-delusion. He yeah. is. And, and there's, a, there's a brilliant bit, actually, where early on in the book where the jailer be appointed as Amy's godfather. He's a godfather. And she says to him, you know, oh, I've heard, because she's an intelligent girl and she learns to read. She gets one of the prisoners to teach her to read. And she says, I've read about this fields and trees and things. What are those? The jailer says, oh, well, well I'll, take, I'll show you. And on alternate weekends, he takes her to somewhere where there are fields and trees. And he shows her far more love and consideration than her own father. And he wants to leave her some money when he dies. And there's a brilliant bit where he goes around saying to people, how can I leave money to a young girl, in a completely hypothetical case, in a way that wouldn't allow her relatives to get hold of it? And and, law, and there's some lawyer, you see, in the debtor's prison, you can meet everybody. There's a lawyer who's in prison for debt. And he says, oh, it's really simple. He says, if you name her, then her relatives can no more lay claim to it than I could. And then the jailer says, but suppose this person is a tender-hearted girl who might be susceptible to the pleas of her relatives. And the lawyer goes, oh, well, nothing to do there. <laughs> And so he doesn't leave her the money because he knows it will go straight to the dad, of course. He just sucks the money up from her. So anyway, I've deviated, sorry, a bit from your, your, your question, Jimmy. But just, I suppose that experience, that sense that Dickens must have had of, you know, not only am I doing this awful job, age 12, mm. apparently forever, but I'm doing so in order to keep my father, <laughs> who's an adult, who's supposed to look after me afloat, a complete inversion of the natural order. And I think that's, that's what's really the common thread. It's so interesting, that point that you said about how they were imprisoned mentally after leaving the prison. Mm. It's like an inescapable past that's, that's wrapped around you. you yes, know? yes. And she's, the, and she's the only one that's, um, that's freed from that. You know? Yes. She's always been her own person, and, and the other three uh, uh, are closed off, shelled in. But uh, Yes, and so, of course, when, when William Dorrit in Italy dies, and he becomes sort of, I suppose we might say, demented, certainly delirious, mm. um, he thinks he's in the prison again. Yeah. You know, and, it, and it's brilliant. Of course, you read that and, you know, there's something, it's comical because <laughs> he's supposed to be living this grand life. And before he ends up actually bedbound, there's a phase which is, Dickens, I think, is master of things which are both um, painful and pathetic and also terribly funny at the same time. Yeah. You know, where you shouldn't really be laughing. You're laughing, but you shouldn't be laughing. Yeah. Um, so he's a kind of, he's brilliant at sort of funny deathbeds and things. Mm. And there's a bit where William Dorrit is hosting, you know, people in, in Venice, and he's trying to impress them, but he's already phasing out. So he starts talking to them in the language of the prison. <laughs> and, and it's very confusing. And, and of course, his... His, the his, his, his daughter and son, Amy's siblings, are sort of trying to cover it up, but they can't. And it's awful, but it's very, very funny. And you do sort of, it's funny partly, of course, because, of, you know, praise the Lord, none of us, I hope, are like William Dorrit. Well, on the other hand, you do sort of think, oh, perhaps that's the way we all go. Perhaps there comes this point where <laughs> we all go back to the thing you know, which actually is most powerful in our lives. 
and perhaps that's not the thing which we're most proud of or which represents us best. I always think that when I read that bit of William Dorrit, you know, um, perhaps there but for the grace of God go I sort of thing. Yeah, he, he writes it so well. Um, in his real life, when he was writing this, um, didn't he have like a, a really disappointing reunion with Maria Winter or Maria Biednell? And yes, this is supposed to be based on Arthur and Flora reuniting because he fell out with her at his 21st birthday party or something and they didn't speak. Yes, to yes, yes. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it, it and I think it's not a speculative. It absolutely is definitely, oh, you know, he, he admitted himself <laughs> um, to his friend John Forster that he did this. That there was, um, you know, when Dickens was a young, really young man, I mean, a teenager, you know, 18, 19, and he just got his first sort of journalistic work. And he was actually, it was really low level, although really suited him very well for, you know, his later fictional endeavours because what he was working as was reporting on the law cases in a thing called Doctors Commons and those were frequently really sort of um, ignoble squabbles over the terms of sort of marriage breakups or inheritance fights but of a very me modest kind mm. and um, of boundary disputes and all sorts of things and anyway he was he was reporting on the better tales of these for for newspapers and he courted a banker's daughter who's really basically just above his pay grade and uh, Maria or Maria I don't know how you pronounce it actually but Maria Biednell as she was then and I think she was also quite vivacious quite sexy he was 18, 19, 20, perhaps, when it all ended. And we have some of his love letters, really, they were, that he wrote to her. And I think we don't quite know whether it was her or her dad or both. Because she, she entertained his advances for quite a long time, yeah. actually. But, you know, clearly she thought she was going to do better than this young jumped I mean you know he came from nowhere he got nothing mm. um and all he had was prospects and those didn't seem that great so she turned him down and um he was really crushed by this uh clearly and then um 20 odd years later when he was writing think planning little dorrit she wrote to him because she'd been reading his novels you know and it's one of these things that kind of Again, I think this happens, doesn't it? Somebody gets famous and people come out of their past and say, oh yeah, I was always, I was always very keen on you. Oh, the one <laughs> anyway, that got she, away. <laughs> yes, and they wrote letters to each other. And he, again, her letters don't survive, his do. And they're really, you know, it flicked a switch, clearly. And he went, oh, yes, you know, and I find, and he wrote, you know, embarrassing things. My feelings are reviving. And he arranged a meeting and she warned him. She was now a married woman. She was married to the owner of a sawmill in Finsbury in North London, affluent, but, you know, a nobody, mm. an affluent nobody, her husband. And she said, oh, I'm stout and toothless and... And he was hearing none of this. And they arranged a meeting and he was appalled. You know, <laughs> he was appalled. And all, you know, but he was only appalled because, I mean, she, she sort of warned him she was much changed. Yeah. He was appalled because he was living, you know, he was living in a bit of a fantasy, fantasy world. Mm. He'd been taken back to his youth. Yeah. And the tone of his communications with her immediately changed after they met. She became Mrs. Winter in his letters. Oh, and how I know, I know. And then he made her into Flora Finching, um, oh. who is this... Uh, but I mean, you know, in, in his... Well, like, should I defend him? I mean, Flora Finching's a brilliant character, is the only defence. But would you want to be her? No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. <laughs> and Flora 
he, you know, but he doesn't transpose uh, Maria into Flora. He creates Flora Finching out of the idea of her. And actually, the, both the, def the defense of Dickens is also the thing which makes it much worse, because he makes Flora in a way much worse, because Flora is an amazingly silly middle-aged widow by now who tries to resurrect their relationship. It's not Arthur who does it, it's the woman who does it, um, with a display of flirtatiousness and silliness, yeah. which is hilarious and painful. Yeah. But also he gives her this incredible sort of garrulous, she speaks without full stops, just the occasional comma, mm. and all her sentences run into one. And it, it's reminiscent, actually, Forster, Dickens's friend, said, have you ever read Jane Austen's Emma? Because you must have encountered Mrs. Miss Bates in Emma, who speaks in a sort of eternal flow with sort of lots of words left out. Mm. Um, and Dickens said, no, he hadn't got it from there. But anyway, it's an extraordinary, you know, it's impossible to quote because she only speaks in great slabs. Yeah. No breath. No, yes, no breath at all. And it, it's brilliant. It's brilliant, but, you know, perhaps an unfair exploitation of that relationship. But, but you know, Flora's not, but Flora is in the end, a, she's a good and magnanimous character. Yeah. As well as a hilariously foolish one. And, um, you know, she's not... She's not one of those foolish characters in Dickens who's seen without affection. She is seen with affection, mm -hmm. but she is very, very silly and funny. Oh, well, listen, yeah. John, it's been such a treat to have you on. And you've just, you know, it's been so, so interesting. So thank you so much. I've just got one question because we don't have long, but yes. Um, what's, we've done eight, nine books, I think, maybe 10. What's your favourite? Favourite Dickens book? Yeah. Great Expectations is my favourite. Me That's yours too. Island, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, yours too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great minds think alike, don't they? <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. I think it's the one. There's a couple of obvious reasons. I mean, I'm not the first to say it. First of all, it is the one which I think doesn't have any sentimentality in it at all. Yeah. And I think that may sound like a negative bit of praise, but it's it's the most perfect one. It's just there's no. There's no superfluities. Everything connects with everything else. And every time I reread it, which I quite often do, it's, um, I notice some brilliant little connection that I hadn't noticed before. And it does this wonderful thing of mixing sort of horror and comedy. You know, that very first chapter in the graveyard does it. You know, everybody remembers from the David Lean film, it's scary. But actually, if you read it, it's very funny as well as scary. And I just think it's Great Expectations does that brilliantly. Yeah. Uh, we could talk to you for hours and hours. And I, there are so many things that I would love to chat to you about. But time is running out. So thank you so, so much for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure. It's a self-indulgence for me. Great to meet you. Lovely Thanks to have so you on. Well. Thank you. See you. Bye. 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 What a fantastic guest. Honestly, I could have just talked to him for hours and hours, much like we did with Fern. I just wanted to fill my brain with all of the information. So cool. He's such a cool guy and just so, and I really would point people in the direction of reading this book, The Artful Dickens. It's, it's just, um, you know, I've got it in front of me here. The Daily Telegraph describes it. They say, Mullen has the happy knack of making you read even familiar works with fresh eyes. But yeah, I just found it so interesting and um, all the different things that he was describing and the difference with um, the difference with I mean that's the thing that I found quite interesting the difference with Micawber from David Copperfield and um, William Dorrit because obviously you know he wrote his circumstance was based on Little Dorrit but actually the character of his father was more Mr Micawber so it's interesting as to how he you know found this other character of someone who wasn't really like his dad who was a lot more insecure and a lot more of a you know, I guess, a, a, or, you know, maybe it was like his dad. So that was quite fascinating, the mm. difference of those two characters. 
I quite like to think of it as like everybody has different versions of themselves that we present, you know, we're not just one thing um, to, to every, every person. So like, I, I know that some people might see me as one way and other people might see me as another way and I can be different. And that is just different aspects of my personality. And so he's kind of split that into these two characters and it's the both aspects of the same person, you know, two sides of the same coin. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it really is um, a very a very accurate example of like you know the 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 paths people can take when um, insecurity and and social aspirations take over. But um, but no, really, really fascinating. So thanks so much to John for coming on the pod. Yeah, I'm um, very jealous. Our listeners obviously cannot see what we see when we're doing these recordings, but. I have a tiny little bookcase behind me and in his in his zoom room wherever that was it was just the, a huge bookcase and i was just staring at it i felt like bell from beauty and the beast being like i just want to go in there and look at all those books you, you, you wouldn't have left that for three weeks i think if you'd have been in that room it's it's nuts it's like a library yeah don't let me into a room with loads of books i will never ever leave <laughs> So shall we do the part of the podcast where we talk about where you can watch it and where you can see it? Um, I've not seen any versions of this. I can only point people in the direction of reading it or the audiobooks. And again, um, I believe that there is a free version if you don't want to pay for it on Audible on um, the podcast app where you can get it in installments. So if you want to do it old school, like with Charles Dickens and the 19 installments that they would have done back in the day, you can do it that way and you can just listen chapter by chapter um on on the Mm. podcast app for free Mm. um i watched the bbc version which was from 2008 uh which was uh an episode uh 14 episodes i think so done like the serials would have been um disappointing i'd say being honest yeah no we don't have to love everything that's fine I don't know. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't get much from it. It was very good acting, really good performances, especially by Matthew McFadden and Claire Foy. But it just—I don't know. The way it was told felt very slow and very, um, very slow burning. I think the way I'd describe it for, for for a story that is excellent. I mean, it's a really brilliant story. Um, you just didn't really get the feel that it was moving at the lick. That it, that it would have done. I think it got better actually as it went on, but um, I didn't have the same enthusiasm, certainly that I, that I had for Bleak House, which was in a very similar um, setup, you know, on the BBC with, you know, episodes as they would have been done with the cliffhangers. So um, I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also heard that there was like a film with, um, was it, what's his name? Was it Derek Jacobi, David Jacobi? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Which, what's his name? Uh, well, there there is an actor called Derek Jacobi. I don't know if if if, if that's the person you're thinking of. I believe <laughs> it probably is the person probably I'm thinking is. of. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, Derek, appara- yeah. <laughs> apparently that film American. is. I, I saw I saw that that film is also quite disappointing. So basically, to end yeah, but- this podcast season, definitely, definitely, definitely read this one or listen to it. Don't go watching anything because if you want to really experience it and experience the writing and hear the characters voices this is the book to read so let's finish by saying let's finish this series by saying ali what is the most well we should both think about this actually about the most interesting thing that we've found out i i I really i think the thing that i found interesting about him which is actually something that you told me that i've done a bit of reading up on was his ability as an actor to just play out all these different parts and his ownership of, 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 of performing and playing all these different roles. And I think that that's why, I, I, I personally think that Charles Dickens is the most audiobook friendly uh, writer because it lends itself so well to one, one voice coming out of, um, not one voice, hundreds of voices coming out of one person. And I think that's, uh, you know, I really would point people in the direction of reading audio, uh, listening to the audio books. Um, but yeah, I had no idea about his, his ability as a performer and his one man shows. And I think uh, that's something really fascinating about him. What is the thing that you have found out about him that you find interesting? My favourite Dickens fact is finding out about how much he hated Hans Christian Andersen and basically <laughs> <laughs> Uriah Heep. Uriah Heep. Um, yeah. 
It's just, it's my favorite story. They say don't meet your heroes. And I think for Hans Christian Andersen, that cannot be truer. The fact that he was so appallingly written as, as Uriah Heep and forever sort of, oh gosh. I just, it, it's a fantastic, fantastic story. I love it so much, but don't fuck with authors. This is the thing. They will write you down in history however they want, and it is not a flattering view. My whole perception of the writer of The Ugly Duckling and The Little Mermaid is shattered beyond belief now, and all I think of when I think of Hans Christian Andersen is some creepy sycophant who was just like crawling all over Charles Dickens and outstayed his welcome by five weeks. That is, that is my favorite Dickens story. Okay, and final question is, what is your, uh, having done the whole season now, because obviously we had our favourite at the beginning, well actually you said Great Expectations is your favourite, is it still your favourite? Yeah, Great Expectations will still be my favourite, definitely. Um, I found new enjoyments from from the books after rereading them again. Um, You know, I was not really a, a fan of A Tale of Two Cities before, I'm still not overly enthusiastic about it but there are things in it that I appreciate now reading it a second time as older um, and I, I really enjoy like you know the, the the little bits of history that I've learned about like Madame Dufrage being based on like Ada Lovelace I, I find that so fascinating and I love mm-hmm. Ada Lovelace like yeah like a girl yeah. yes so <laughs> that- yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely um I would say for me, it's, you know, it's difficult because I do, I do love Oliver Twist as a story. Um, but I would say the thing that would edge it for me, the flawless Dickens story for me um, is A Christmas Carol. Because the thing about A Christmas Carol is it has no coincidences. It's all completely believable. And um, it's just such a beautifully told story of one man's redemption. And I think the fact that it was written in such a short space of time, you know, that whole thing about how you work under pressure and when you're warring against the clock, you sometimes do your best work. Mm. And sometimes when you, you take two years to write something, it's not normally, it, can't, it sometimes isn't as good because you're, 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 you're overdoing it too much. You're overanalyzing it. Whereas when you just have that time pressure, you can draw out something beautiful. Uh, I think that that for me is the story that's just pitch perfect in, in every way. Um, so I would say that. Lovely. Well, thank you so much for joining us on our season of Dickens. We will be back next season. We are doing a woman. Um, it is yeah. either going to be, we were talking about Jane Austen, but I'm, I'm going to push Jimmy for a bit of Virginia Woolf. So join us and we can find out what we're going to be next season. I'm going to push Ali for a little bit of Alexandra Evans. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe you can write a masterpiece like Dickens did with The Christmas Carol in the space between now and series three. So uh, I'd need to get a literary agent and a publisher. So um, let's not hold out for that. And let's go for somebody brilliant. (laughs) You need to go to John Mullins' house and spend time with his bookcase. I think that's what you know. Thanks so much, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for um, listening to it. And I know we say it every time, but stay safe. And also happy Valentine's Day as well to everyone. Happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) Um, But wash your hands. (laughs) Wash your hands. Thank you so much. See you next season. Ciao.